From the studio on the University of Georgia campus, this is Unscripted. I'm your host, Alan Fleury. On each episode of Unscripted, I'll be talking with scholars, artists, journalists, and leaders from all corners of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, as well as guest speakers and lecturers to the UGA campus. My guest in this episode of Unscripted is Nicole Lazar, UGA professor of statistics. A fellow of the American Statistical Association, Lazar was one of three co-authors of an editorial published in a special issue of The American Statistician in March 2019 that addressed a compelling issue affecting research and clinical trial results across the sciences, the use of statistical significance in research findings. The entire special issue, Statistical Inference in the 21st Century, a World Beyond P Less Than .05, contained 43 papers by statisticians around the world, calling for an end to using this specific probability value, a term we'll try to explain shortly. Nicole Azar, welcome to Unscripted. Thank you. There was a very big AP Associated Press story and many others that brought a lot of media attention immediately following the special issue. So it's something that we probably should begin to understand. I thought maybe we could begin with this question. Why did the premier journal of the statistics discipline choose to take on the issue of probability values? And why now? Well, it actually goes back to 2016 um, when the American Statistical Association put together a committee to look at the p-value and how it's used and misused in the sciences. And at the end of that time, uh, they came up with a statement that included six principles on how p-value should be used and interpreted. And that by itself generated a fair bit of interest, but the association decided to follow up on it and had a workshop in 2017, which actually led to the special issue in 2019. And part of the reason for why this happened now is that there's been a perception of a reproducibility and replicability crisis in science. And... Some people were attributing this to misuses and abuses of statistics, and so we felt that it was a good time to come in and, and talk about it and try to steer the conversation maybe in a better way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do we mean by replicability? That's a good question. Uh, different people mean slightly different things by it. Um, so there's reproducibility and replicability. Those are both terms that get used, and they mean slightly different things. So I think for the most part, when people say reproducibility, they mean that if I give them my exact code and my exact data, that they will get the exact same results as I did. Um, replicability, I think, for the most part, is interpreted slightly differently. And that is, if I run a similar study, it doesn't necessarily need to be that I have your data, but I do a similar study to try to um, study the same phenomenon or related phenomenon, that I would get consistent results to what somebody else got. So... They're, they're very related to each other, but they're not exactly the same thing. So we're talking about scientific experiments, clinical trials. Yes. The way people glean results from their experimentation. Yes, correct. That's right. After they get some results, they judge the meaning of their results based on their probability value. Yes, and that's part of the problem. So the p-value um, has become sort of a gatekeeper um, of what, what, gets, what results get published even, so what can make it into a journal and what results are considered to be important or interesting or even real. And that's a role that it was never meant to have. So the term statistical significance, is it, is it a term that's been around for a long time? It seems to have a couple of potential meanings, and yet 
it also has some power to undermine certain uh, science at certain points. Uh, yeah, it's been around for a long time. Um, probably, I don't, I don't know all the history of it, but I'm gonna, but at least 50, 60, 70 years. I mean, so it's not, it's not a new term by any means. What is different, though, is I think the huge amount of attention and importance that's been attributed to it. So the people who first came up with these notions of significance testing, hypothesis testing that are so common in science nowadays, they themselves said uh, any kind of threshold that you might use shouldn't be the same for all situations. It should be context specific. Any one study should not be determinative. You should have a preponderance of evidence from different studies pointing to a similar conclusion. And significance at that time also meant something a little bit different from what it means now. So now we think about significance as meaning important um, and and and. Uh, well, important. Just in an everyday sense. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it didn't used to mean that. It just meant something that maybe was worth noting. Uh-huh. And so something that was significant was maybe worth another look, another study, but it was not taken by any means to be determining, oh, this is truth, this is real, or this is not real if it didn't make some threshold. And that's been definitely changed in the last I don't know. I don't know when the change started to happen, but certainly as long as I've been doing statistics, this is the way that we've been taught it. This is the way we've taught it to scientists. And so now there's this is starting to shift back. And so this is the uh, um, replicability challenge is that's how we prove things are, are accurate or true or legitimate by repeating the experiment and getting the same results. Yeah. But what do we mean by the same results? Mm. So do I uh, there's I'm not going to get the same P value as you got. OK, that's. Not going to happen unless I have exactly the same data as you had in all respects. So what does it mean to get the same results? Is it enough that it be in the same direction? Is it enough that the the indications for what's interesting and important are the same? So that you need to take that bigger picture and not just pin everything on just a single number, whether it meets some arbitrary threshold or not. It seems difficult for scientists to maybe... Uh, parse this, but mm-hmm. for the regular person in the public, yeah, how do we think about p values? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, and we've been we've been struggling a lot with this over the over the last year, certainly, and especially since the special issue came out in March, how to how to how to explain what's really going on and and why it's important. And scientists have been really actually quite helpful in this because they all have stories of, you know, clinical trials or some kind of experiment that looked like it was really, really interesting. And it had some results that could have been really important, but because it didn't hit some arbitrary threshold, never saw the light of day. Mm. And that's, I think, where maybe the public needs to understand what's going on. Is that, for instance, um, medicines don't get approved because somebody did a trial and the p-value was less than Oh, sorry, was not less than 0.05. So 0.06, very close, but it didn't hit that threshold. And so it doesn't get approved. And the interpretation is, well, that drug didn't work, but that's not a correct interpretation. Mm. That drug did work to some extent, Um, maybe to a large extent. So you need to look at, instead of moving away from these probability definitions, which anyway, people have a hard time interpreting, think about the effect size. And what does it mean in terms of lives saved or years added to quality of life or pounds lost on a diet and <laughs> translate it back into real terms that people can understand. And then from that, decide whether there's a real meaningful effect or not that you could follow up on with new studies as well. Right. Right. So 
scientists, um, people who are running experiments of all kinds, they generate a lot of data. They do. And then they have to pull out the anomalies. Uh, sometimes it's referred to as noise or what have you. Mm-hmm. Aberrations. Yeah. To try to get to the actual, the signal. Yeah. It's it's tricky because you, you do want to be working with clean data. You do want to be working with reliable data. But once you start doing that, there's also the temptation to whether it's implicit or not, and usually it's not, people don't even think about it. Oh, this this point here, this observation is a little bit weird. I'll just throw it out. And if it happens to get me below the threshold, then all the better. Ah. Yeah, so so there's definitely a tension there. Um, but, and I don't, that part I don't really quite know how to resolve yet. So this is part of the conversation that we're still having, and this is ongoing. I mean, people in the, in the past nine months and more, actually stretching back to 2016 when the first statement came out, there's been a lot of conversation within the statistics community, within the scientific community about how do we, how do we deal with all of these issues and how do we convey a message that will be understandable to the public and won't undermine the public's trust in science because science is still working well. Mm-hmm. You know, this can maybe give the impression that things are not, but this is how science progresses. Right. We go back, we revisit, we change our ideas, we revise. That's just part of the scientific process. And here we're seeing it play out in statistics as well. Yeah. And so if, if uh, not to pan out too far, but it is how science works. This is science itself. Yeah. It's, it's holding itself up to the light. Correct. Um, I read about this. I guess it's a movement or an initiative called Open Science. Uh-huh. What, what does that signify? So Open Science is actually, I would consider it to be another aspect of this whole conversation that mm. we've been having, which is being open about your analysis, mm. sharing your code, sharing your data, open access publishing, having everything out there so that other scientists can see what you did, evaluate it, assess it, try different analysis on their, of their own, combine it with their data, see what the bigger picture is. It sounds sort of obvious. Has, has, it, has it not been happening? Are people been, has it been more closed? Is that why we need open science? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, the short answer is yes. Um, the longer answer is well, collecting data is time-consuming and expensive. Mm-hmm. And so why should I just put my data out there for everybody to see if it took me all this time and money and energy to collect it? I want to glean from it what I can before I put it out there for everybody else. So that's one aspect of it. That's starting to change. Uh, funding agencies like NIH uh, and NSF are starting to require that data be made public. Mm. Uh, and there are data, and there are public repositories of data. So this is all relatively new. Um, but then also... You know, I even think back on, on, on my own career and, and things that I've done. It's just that's not how we were trained to sh- share your code openly. Mm. If people would ask me, I would send it to them right. usually. But sometimes <laughs> I would say, but sometimes it's like, oh, you know, I didn't think about writing this code on the expectation that somebody else would use it. So this is for my own purposes, some results, some research that I was doing. Someone would ask me for my code. I'd have to dig it up. I'd have to make sure, you know, does it work? I don't know. I wrote it on a computer 10, 15 years ago. I'm not even really sure where it is. If one of my graduate students wrote the code, he or she may have graduated and not stuck in academia. So I have no way of even getting it from that person anymore. It's just we were not we were not brought up to to be sharing things in this way. But that is also starting to change. And it's not that it was proprietary per se. No, not at all. But even if I get code from somebody else, if, if it's not well commented, I'm not going to know what they did. And there's sort of a joke in the in the open science movement that your most important collaborator is future you. So if you go back and look at the at code that you wrote six months ago, if you didn't annotate it and comment it well, 
even though you wrote it, you're not necessarily going to understand what it, what's doing. I mean, that's how complicated some of these things are. And I find, you know, I'll, so I've started putting more and more comments in my code that I write, but it's often not enough, even when I go back and look at it and try to redo things later. So it's not proprietary. It's just it was a different way of doing things. And now that's also starting to shift. Mm, that's a good one for all of us. The future you. The future you. Yeah, I love that. Unscripted is a production of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, the oldest, largest, and most academically diverse college at the University of Georgia. Critical thinking skills from languages and literature to the biological sciences build the foundation for every profession as they empower students to be informed, engaged citizens. For more on the Franklin College, visit franklin.uga.edu. Welcome back to Unscripted and my conversation with UGA statistics professor Nicole Lazar. We're discussing the nature of probability and what has become an over-reliance on statistical significance for determining value and importance in scientific findings. You kind of infer this, but uh, so a lot of things about the world have obviously changed in 100 years. Yeah. How has science changed the way we conduct science? I think it used to be much more um, maybe boutique. I'm not quite sure if that's the right word. Oh, no, but, no, but it's easy, easily understood. Yeah, yeah that, that it was it was a certain elite kind of um, pursuit that you had a patron mm. and that person would sponsor your work or that or that entity would sponsor your work. Science, I think, is is more, in general, more open, more democratic now than it used to be and bigger, yes. right, and, and more sort of all over the place. And so that's good. That's great. But it also brings with it... Uh, certain responsibility to to think very carefully about what we do and what we say. Also, there's a lot of you know just just how people how people get hired, how people get promoted and tenured, and how they get grant proposals and how they get funded and how they get papers published. Is do you have that thing that can be hyped? Mm. And it's a lot of pressure. That is a lot of pressure, and it's really rough. And in, even in the time that I've been in academia, I've seen it change so much. You know, what people coming in applying for even assistant professor jobs now have to have so much more in the way of publications and grant experience than I did when I was coming out. So even in this 20 years, it's changed a lot as well. So it's a lot of pressure on people. So meanwhile, alongside of all of that, uh, uh, computing power has exploded. Absolutely. There's a data explosion. Yes. Surely that's affected statistics as well. It has. Uh, so there's the whole data science trend that everyone's talking about, and there's a lot of soul searching within statistics about, well, aren't we data science? We've been doing it all along, and it wasn't popular, and now it is, and and this is what we've been doing, and how come we're not getting that recognition? So there's some soul searching in statistics that's been going on there. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I think it's a great opportunity for our profession because, as you say, there are so much data out there of all sorts of different types that weren't available uh, even 10 years ago. And so that gives us opportunity to develop new methods, um, to teach our students in different ways. I think it's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. And is it true that it's easier than ever to do statistical analysis? Yes. And that's actually part of the problem, right? Because ah. anybody can take their data, dump it into a package, hit a button, and get out a p-value, mm. right, without necessarily understanding what are the assumptions of that method, whether their data are suited to that method or not, what problems might be if they use that method versus some others, what other alternative approaches there are. And so, yes, it's, it's, it's easier than ever to do statistics in that sense, but it's also easier than ever to do bad statistics 
And that's where I think we still have a role, a really important role to play. Well, well, because the need has somewhat exploded. I mean, from finance to politics, people want analysis. Yes. There's data about everything. Everything. Absolutely. And so, you know, I always tell our students from undergrad up through grad students at the highest levels, like this is a great time to to be involved in statistics because there are so many problems. There's so many different types of data. Anything that you're interested in, you can find some data about to analyze. And so sports, digital humanities, law, I mean, areas that you would not necessarily have thought of being areas of, of statistical pursuit 15, 20 years ago are right there now with everything else. Mm. What does it take to be a good statistician? Uh, skepticism. Well, well, that's very important, but please <laughs> yeah. expand on that. Uh, so, so actually now all my students laugh about it because they know that the first <laughs> thing out of my mouth is going to be, be skeptical. Um, skepticism is, is really important. Good mathematical skills, good computing skills, good communication skills as well. So people don't often think about that as being important for statisticians. And our students are definitely not happy when we come along and say it's important, but it is because you need to be able to communicate what you've done to somebody else, uh, whether it's a boss, whether it's the scientist who gave you the data to begin with, whether it's someone like you that I'm talking to, Mm -hmm. we need to be able to communicate what we're doing and why and why it's important. And some of these issues that we deal with are really, they're really subtle mathematically. They're really hard being able to convey that in understandable terms is important. Absolutely. Oh, it's, it's a crucial skill, but the skepticism is an important point because that's what we're talking about is the, the thirst for certainty. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so thresholds that get attached to uh, P values for establishing things like statistical significance, which I don't want to say, uh, <laughs> is, is actually taking this really uncertain world and putting a label of certainty on it that's not warranted. And so I think that's where a lot of the, the pushback is coming from where, you know, those of us who are involved in this, in this effort, and it's a lot of people. I mean, we've gained some visibility, the three of us who wrote the editorial and co-edited the special issue because we were the name on the, on the lead editorial. Mm -hmm. But there are people all over the world working on this. And the more I talk to people, the more I discover others involved in this and scientists as well. You know, the world is uncertain. And that's, of course, scary in some way, but just putting this label on it doesn't change anything about the uncertainty. It just makes you feel maybe that you have more certainty than you do. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I don't think that does anything good for science. And people readily associate science with certainty for some reason. Yeah. And I, and I don't know why. Um, and then, you know, then there's this other added baggage that we talked about a little bit a couple minutes ago, where if you say, oh, something is statistically, statistically significant, then people would interpret that as meaning true. Or this is a real effect. If it wasn't statistically significant, then there was no effect there. Mm-hmm. And that's not right either. That's right. not the right way to interpret things. And so... One of my one of my favorite uh, statistics bloggers, Andrew Gelman at the at Columbia University, and and he always says, statistics is hard. Doing statistics well is really hard, and the world is an uncertain place. And and if we do need to make a decision that's based on a threshold, let's push it off to the very very last stage that we possibly can, and not try to impose this early on in the process, which is what tends to happen now. Ah, uh, I see. Well, that's a very uh. It's a very prudent warning. Yes. Um, science is not a safe space. 
away from the uncertainty of the world. <laughs> no, it, sh- or it shouldn't be anyway. But, but it's proffered in that way. We're, we're in advertising and other venues. We're always, we always, we're for, everyone's familiar with the, the, the words study show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> from everything, the new, from new statins to airbags, whatever it is. Absolutely. Um, and I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, it's it's really sort of easy and flip to say I don't pay attention anymore <laughs> if it says study show. Yeah. But I think, you know, as a member of the public, even though I know what all of these issues are, I can see where that weariness comes from. Because oh, sure. one day, you know, coffee is good for you. The next day it's not. One day wine, a glass of wine is good for you. The next day it's not. Or you, or you read the results of these studies that just don't make any sense if you apply your common sense filter. Mm. But they get bandied about like this is something important and real. And so I could see where people just get weary of it and say, I'm not going to believe anything anymore. Yes. Cynicism (laughs) is not the same as skepticism. No, no. Um, It's, it's easy to, to go from one to the other, (laughs) I think. And I work really hard to just keep my skeptics hat on and not let my cynics hat take over. Mm. But, but it's, it's, it's definitely a struggle. And I can see this in my students as well, because I'm telling them, be skeptical. I'm telling them, you know, there is uncertainty, live with it, embrace it, be okay with it. But at the same time, then I'll see them kind of go a little bit, some of them go a little bit too far in the other direction and say, well, I just can't believe anything anymore. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah it's not, we can't, you can't become a nihilist about it all. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we have to leaven this with, oh, is, maybe that's that we, we downplay our own, our own reliance on logic. Yeah. We just, because we don't believe it. Yeah, right. And that's, I think that doesn't do good things for anybody. No. Now, recently you had a conversation at a, a meeting or a, a conference with a lot of science communicators, science yes. reporters. Yes. And you were talking to them about this very thing. I was. How did that go over? I think it went well. They were they were really receptive. Um like everybody else, they're wondering, okay, so what do we do now? <laughs> you know, if you're telling us don't do what we used to do, what's the alternative? And I told them, just like I tell my students and just like I tell my collaborators and just like I tell myself, um, this is science. You know, statistics is a science. It's it's a little bit of an art, but it's also science. And science is always in flux. And right now, this is our, one of our moments of flux. I don't know how things are going to pan out. Um, one of the things that I suspect and others as well is that different disciplines will come to maybe slightly different conclusions about what's best practice for them. Mm. And then the science writers and science communicators will have to do so similarly. I think, um, I, one thing that I learned, which I didn't know before was that science writers, and it it makes perfect sense. I don't know why I didn't think about it, but you know, they have areas of expertise as well. So there's some people that work more in physical sciences and some people that work more in social sciences and biological sciences. They may come up with different solutions. So those science writers will also come up with different solutions on how to report results and how to think about results. That's a very strong probability, I think. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and which just led me to the sort of a co- correlated question is, what should scientists who are not statisticians do? How should they treat this new development? Talk to their local statistician. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I mean, again, because it's so easy to just do statistics, quote unquote, mm-hmm. without really necessarily thinking about it. I mean, most scientists do get some statistical training, but not a lot. It might be one course or two courses in their graduate career. And that's not enough to keep up with all the changes. So 
you know, most universities have a statistics department or there's some statisticians within the math department or there's a consulting center or there are people on campus that they can talk to. Mm -hmm. Scientists don't need to do this by themselves. Oh, and so oftentimes they do with a little bit of knowledge, perhaps? Yeah. Um, the, the worst thing for us is when someone comes to us after they've already collected the data and then say, can you help me analyze this? And sometimes it's just hopeless because the design of the experiment is so poor or there are not enough subjects or whatever the reasons are. So we've, we've, we've always push, talk to the statistician before you design the study, before you collect the data. If you come to us after, it's often too late. Mm. I know it's not completely analogous, but maybe we need to introduce a form of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Schrodinger's p-value. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nicole Azar, thank you so much. It's been very enlightening. I appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. <laughs>